Hey, Mountain. Good evening, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. We're a church that gathers in three places on the weekends here and at the Edgewood campus and over at the Beller campus. And so welcome to everyone who's here joining with us. And um, I have been uh, traveling a little bit. I just got back from a trip to Mexico. We do these summer go trips, we call them. They're term mission trips. And uh, we, got, we went to Mexico. And so I wanted to start by showing you guys a photo from one of our flights home. This is me in the middle trying to just get some rest, right, after a busy week. And so you can see how I really, uh, as a leader of the trip, I kind of really earned the respect of the team. And uh, it was, but it was an awesome week. I, I think uh, you guys would be really proud of the group that Mountain sent down and the work that was done. We did a lot of great stuff. We, we partnered with the campus ministry down where my wife Erin and I served for several years and we helped them kick off their fall semester, spent a lot of time uh, with college students. We, we served at a local orphanage. We went out into some smaller towns and, and did some clean water projects and helped get, helped get people with the Bible in their hands and tell them the story of God. And, and so it was an awesome week. And it was a little bit of a microcosm of all the things that we did in our years there when we were there full time as missionaries. And um, as I was just thinking about that, looking back on last week, and thinking forward to today's message, I, I remembered something that I've said and that I really, I really believe that, that a lot of the best work that we did in all of our years in Mexico, a lot of, you know, of all the groups that we hosted and the studies that we led and the sermons that we preached and the, and the events that we planned, of all the things we did, maybe the best thing we did, maybe the most effective thing we did for God was uh, to just model a Christian family, to just model a marriage that was centered on Christ and just kind of live our lives that way and let people watch. And uh, just a lot of the things, a lot of the most important things that God did in us and through us, I think, happened sort of in the off-the-clock times, in those those in-between unexpected times when we did things like just have a student over to our house for dinner. Or we would just uh, have our kids running around at the campus house there and they would just watch us, watch how we parented our kids. Or we would go on a date and run into some students out at the movies outside of that ministry context. And, and they were just they were watching us because many of them had never seen a healthy family. They, had, they didn't know what that looked like. And most of them had no clue what a marriage based on Christ would even really look like. And so we're in this series called Torn. We're talking about some tough stuff. And today we're talking about Torn Family. And it's a you know, I could just, I could tell story after story of some of those young people we worked with. I, I remember several different ones who discovered during their college years that their dads had secret other families on the side in other cities and, and siblings that they didn't know about that were, that were 20 years old. I could tell you about people whose families were, were torn apart when someone had to go far away just to, to find a job to support the family. I could tell you about families devastated by a tragic death or abuse, or bankruptcy, and financial issues, torn sexuality, which is another week in this series that I hope that you'll be here for. It's an important topic. And we saw just a hundred different flavors of torn family. And you know, uh, that's not limited, of course, to campus ministry or to Mexico. We know about that here, don't we? Just the past few days, I've talked to friends around here who are dealing with the shrapnel of divorce that just exploded into their lives. Sometimes years and years ago, uh, people who are fighting bitter custody battles, people struggling with addictions that are threatening to destroy their families or, or trying to figure out what to do now that they've learned of their spouse's infidelity, people who are grasping for ways to deal with rebellious children and trying to deal with the pain involved with that, people trying to heal 
very old wounds from these long, bitter battles between them and their siblings. People trying to hold their families together through joblessness, through devastating illness, and the list just goes on and on and on. I have a friend who told me this the other day. She's in her late 20s. And she said, you know, I thought this was going to be the baby stage. A few years ago, it was the wedding stage. All my friends were getting married, and I'm all the time getting an invitation to a new wedding. And I thought now... I would all the time be hearing about my friends getting pregnant and having babies, but it turns out this is actually the divorce stage. Instead of hearing about babies and pregnancies, she, she more regularly hears about her friends who are, who are getting divorced, and she is becoming accustomed to seeing her peers' families torn apart before they've really even begun. A recent Barna study showed that divorce statistics in our country are, are basically what they have been, roughly half of marriages are going to end in divorce, and the, the statistics are not very different at all between people who call themselves Christians and people at large. And what has changed, though, a little bit is our expectations. George Barna recently noted that you know, Americans have just grown comfortable with divorce as a natural part of life. There, he said this, there no longer seems to be much of a stigma attached to divorce. It is now seen as an unavoidable rite of passage. Interviews with young adults suggest that they want their initial marriage to last, but they're not particularly optimistic about that possibility. There's also evidence that many young people are moving toward embracing the idea of serial marriage, in which a person gets married two or three times, seeking a different partner for each phase of their adult life. Blended families are becoming the norm. 40% of married couples with kids and 35% of all married couples in the U.S., are now step couples. 42% of all adults now have some kind of a step relationship. 10% of women in the U.S. have had three or more marriages, divorces, or cohabiting relationships already. Families are shrinking, in some cases even sort of disappearing. The, the average size of households and families continues to shrink, while correspondingly the, the percentage of people living totally alone continues to grow. And then there's just a huge, huge, huge problem of fatherlessness. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, about one out of every three children in America lives in a biological father-absent home. And nine in ten, this is funny, nine in ten American parents agree this is a crisis. And I'm like, well, what about the other one in ten? Do they got their, their head in a hole, you know? It's a crisis, it is. Children growing up in father-absent homes are significantly more likely to live in poverty as adults, display aggressive behavior, commit crimes, go to prison, become teenage parents, abuse their own children someday, abuse drugs and alcohol, become obese, perform poorly in academics, and put pretty much any other negative thing you can imagine. Check out fatherhood.org sometime or the fatherlessgeneration.wordpress.com. Slash statistics will show you some just amazing, just it's staggering. It's a, it's, an, it's a problem. So just to put it bluntly, the, the term dysfunctional family is a redundant term. Redundant means, you know, it kind of unnecessarily repeats itself within itself, like a burning fire or frozen ice or a new innovation, a safe haven or a wall mural. I, all ice is frozen. You don't need to say frozen ice. A mural is by definition on a wall, and families are dysfunctional. They just are. They're all, one way or another, messed up, including mine including mine, and my, my own family has been torn. And I just want to share a little bit of that story with you guys today. So once upon a time, on a little hill, pretty little hill in Georgia, in a pretty little red brick church, at that church many families worshipped and served and raised their children. And two of those children, one was named Jimmy McDade, and, and then a little girl about three years younger than him named Debbie Oakley, 
They decided they kind of liked each other. And they grew in their friendship to the point where they dated and courted and married. And on March 21st, 1975, they became husband and wife. And Jimmy, you know, he completed his engineering degree, worked in construction. And because of his hard work and integrity, he, he continued to rise in leadership and, and responsibility and success. Debbie, who was a brilliant student, she put aside her own educational and career goals to be a full-time wife and mother. And in late October of 1979, with Debbie dressed in costume as the Great Pumpkin, they went to the hospital and gave birth to a little bundle of joy to whom they gave the name Nathan Lee McDade. That's me. And 21 months later, they added another little boy to the mix. That's my brother, Britt. And the McDade family was set. And the next several years, as I recall, were very, just very happy. We, uh, we lived across the street from one set of grandparents. We lived five miles from the other. We were n- neither rich nor poor. We had everything we needed, much of what we wanted. We had a great church, went to great public schools. We had a great house with a big yard and a basketball court and a go-kart and a golden retriever. And also, as you'll see in this photo, we had awesome sweaters. Awesome sweaters. <laughs> and uh, it was all good. It was all good. It was not perfect, but it was close, or so we thought, until one day... I remember it was St. Patrick's Day of my eighth grade year. My dad sat my brother and me down in the swing outside of our house and dropped a bomb into our lives. He said, your mom and I are having some trouble and I'm going to move out. And it came from out of nowhere. We, we had no idea. It was a huge surprise, not only to us, but everyone in the community, really. And all of a sudden... Just like that, the perfect little all-American family was torn in two. Some couples uh, scream and shout. My parents never did that. It was actually part of the problem. They, they, they not only didn't argue and fight, they apparently didn't communicate very much at all for a long time. And I would learn, as I was learning more of the story, I came to de- desperately wish that they had, that they had sometimes yelled and fought or whatever they needed to do to to communicate with each other. But instead, at some point, very early on, they, you know, when they realized that there were differences and struggles, instead of pressing in, instead of dealing with them, what they did was they began to take slightly different courses, like two ships on on slightly different courses, maybe five degrees off. And you know, for a while that doesn't look like much, but you take, carry that out for 17 years. And one day they, they woke up and had to admit that they had drifted oceans apart. And so my dad moved out. And for about three or four years, most of my high school years, uh, we lived on a roller coaster. My, uh, you know, my parents didn't divorce immediately. They, they tried to work it out. And so there would be days and weeks when we would start to have some hope that, it, that they were going to work it out. And we were like, you know, I think he's about to come back home. This is, this is looking good. And then those would be followed by days and weeks that would be just the opposite. And we would think, why, why don't they just get divorced already? And all the time, all the while we were splitting time between them, going to stay some, some days with our dad in this little apartment in a neighboring town, we were crying and praying, wrestling with God over these feelings and questions that we had, and we were hating, hating the fact that our family had been torn in two. Others got taken along for the ride. It kind of rocked our little church. My parents' friends didn't know what to do. You know, do we have to choose a side or what? Most of them didn't want to do that, so they sort of just faded away, those relationships. But family events became logistical nightmares, and what once was just so simple 
was now so incredibly complicated. And so leaving out many of the gory details, I'll just say that eventually they made the decision to divorce. In the summer of 1997, after 22 years as husband and wife, my parents were no longer married to each other. And what used to be whole was now officially torn. My dad, as men often do, got remarried right away. My mom spent the next several years alone And so my brother and I took kind of a special interest in caring for her and thoroughly screening any would-be suitors. Here's a photo of one of those meetings. (laughs) So eventually one guy kind of passed our tests, and my mom remarried too. And long story short, I have a stepmom and a stepdad and three stepsisters with whom I have varying relationships. And uh, my, my girls have three sets of grandparents instead of two, and I'm beginning to have the the joy of fielding those questions and explaining that. And, you know, holidays and trips are at least 50% harder to schedule and, and so forth, and I know many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. My parents' divorce was one of, if not the single hardest thing I've ever been through, but through it all, I also have to give some thanks to God. He, you know, probably the biggest thing that I'm thankful for through that is that my parents were respectful to each other. They never did what I've seen so many other people do, which is try to use us, use the kids as weapons and pull them to one side or another. They never did that. They were open and honest with us as much as they could be. I'm really thankful that I had my brother to go through it with. And you know, they're both now married to people who love them a lot, who love us a lot, who love our girls a lot. So evidence of God's grace and care are still there throughout the story, but that doesn't change this fact. It's torn. It's torn. And all these years later, I still have these moments. Just, I thought of a random example. There's this one line from this one John Mayer song that I can't, I can't hear without crying. And I'm not telling you which one. <laughs> but when those moments come, those memories flood back, and it, it, it's just so raw, it just feels like it all just happened yesterday. And so every day I wake up and take all that, and I factor it into the decisions that I make about how I'm going to lead my family Like every man, I battle against repeating the sins of my father, and I still probably have some forgiving to do, and I still definitely have some questions for God on the the topic, and my torn family has shaped me and continues to shape me in significant ways every day of my life, and I bet in one way or another that's true of you too. You know, what is your torn family story? Do you know it? Do you acknowledge it? Have you come to grips with it? could be that it's similar to mine. It could be that it's nothing like mine. But whatever the specifics, I want you to hear something today that I believe with all my heart that, that also carried me through some of the darkest and lowest and loneliest times in, in my story. And that's this. God is not okay with all this. He is not okay with the tornness of our families. It is outside of his plan and his vision for our world. God, our loving Father, he hates, he hates the dysfunction and the sin and the pain that seem to reign so often in our families. God, our God of love, he loves our families. He loves us. You know, God didn't have to invent human families, but he did. He created the world that way with the DNA and the blood relationships and all that. He didn't have to, but he did. And so that convinces me that he loves us and he loves our families. And I'm also convinced then that he wants to bring healing and wholeness to those families. If you hang around Mountain for any time at all, you're, you're eventually going to hear somebody say this. We like to say, God loves you exactly how you are. However messed up you are, however far from God you are, even if you've kind of placed yourself in opposition to God, He loves you exactly how you are. And 
He loves you far too much to let you stay exactly how you are. And I, I really believe that that same exact thing is true of our families. God loves your family. Yes, even your messed up family. Even yours. He loves your abusive family. He loves your God-hating family. Your racist family. Your family full of drunks. Your family that is so scattered and at odds with each other that it's, it's like a joke to even use the word family to describe what that is. God loves it. And he loves your family far too much to let it stay that way, to let those unhealthy patterns continue and go into the next generation. God wants to bring change and healing, and he wants to renew and redeem your family because that is what God does. That's what God does. And so God also, I think, today wants to challenge and expand our understanding and our very definition of the word family and take us deeper into his plan and his vision for our lives. So how do we do that? How do we find out what God thinks a family should look like. Our natural inclination might be to go to the Bible and look for some examples of good, healthy families to learn from, but let me just, let me just save you some time. They ain't in there. Okay? Just about every family in the Bible is majorly messed up. Here's some examples. The first family, Adam and Eve, they had it perfect, right? They blew it. Everybody's blaming somebody else. One son murders the other. How about Noah's family? The one, the family that God said, this is the one I'm going to use to restart humanity, right? And they, and they were obedient in the flood and the ark and all this stuff. And then after the flood comes, we find Noah naked and drunk and at odds and cursing his kids. You got Abraham and Sarah, right? The chosen couple, chosen family to start this family, this people of God, uh, to bless the whole world. Well, we've already heard this story recently. He slept with his servant girl because she told him to, and their sons hated each other. And, and that... That battle echoes even now into the violence and war that we see on the news today. Isaac's family, nope. Favoritism, jealousy, deceit. Jacob's family, nope. More of the same. Okay, what about great King David, the man after God's own heart? Well, that may actually be the worst example. Okay, uh, adultery, murder, conspiracy, followed by stalking, incest, rape. David's family is incredibly messed up. Okay, but what about the trump card? Jesus, right? We got Mary and Joseph and Jesus, the ideal family. We've all seen a picture like this one at some point. Okay, and it's true. It does seem that they did a fantastic job of raising Jesus. It says they helped him grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with other people. But you know, other than his birth, the one story we have from the childhood of Jesus is that time when they, you know, forgot about him and left him in the big city and traveled for a whole day before they realized it. So we can't look there for these shining examples of, of stories of how to be a perfect little family. So what do we do? And you know, on the one hand, it is a little morbidly comforting to me to look in the Bible and see that all the families are just as messed up as mine. Somebody told me earlier today, there's nobody in the Bible other than Jesus that I would let babysit my kids. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I need some help. I'm still looking for some help here, God. So how can we know what it is that you want for our families, how you desire to heal the tornness we experience. God, help. So here's the good news. The Bible actually does have a lot to say. It, it gives us more than just a bunch of cautionary what-not-to-do family stories. So today I come bearing three very hope-filled truths from God on the topic of family. And the first one is this. God solves the torn family problem by inviting us into his family. As Christians, we believe we need salvation and Jesus is that Savior. His name means God saves. 
The Bible uses a lot of different metaphors to try to help us understand what it means to receive the salvation of God. There's a financial metaphor of redemption, of being bought back. There's a military metaphor of victory over sin and death. There is a kind of a religious sacrificial metaphor of substitutionary atonement, the, the, the sacrificial lamb. And there's many others, but maybe the most beautiful one to me is the family metaphor of adoption. We all know what adoption is, right? You have a kid that has no family, no home, and then all of a sudden, by a gift of grace, they do. They're welcomed in. They're loved. And the truth is that we are all spiritual orphans. Now, on some level, we are all living... We're growing up fatherless as wanderers and strangers in this world, but we are offered the opportunity to be adopted by our Heavenly Father and to gain membership in the family of God. This is a beautiful thing. The book of Ephesians talks about it, and I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. That's like saying, Daddy. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And that is, that's a beautiful and profound theological truth. But here's what it means on a very practical level. If you are in Christ, you have a family. You have a great family, and it's called the church the church is the family of God on earth. So if your blood family has rejected you, you can find acceptance here in God's family. If your earthly family has been shattered and scattered, you, know, you can again experience unity and closeness as a part of God's family. If you lost your parents or never really had them, in the church you can find some people who will be spiritual parents to you. If you were never able to have kids, you can, in this church, you can, in, in the church, you can love and invest in and be there for some kids who really need you. If you desperately want to be married, but that hasn't been working out for you, you can find intimacy and closeness and true friendship in the church. And the church, by the way, is a much better place to let God eventually, if he wants to, show you the right person to marry. Better than the bar scene. So get involved and, and start serving and trust God with that part of your life. And if you never had a brother and sister and wanted one, well, now you have a bunch of them. Take a look around at this room of weirdos, okay? That is, there's your brothers and sisters right there. So, you know, careful what you wish for. And if you have a great earthly family, but for some reason uh, they're far away, you know, and there's, that leaves gaps to fill in your life, life, God will fill those gaps. He will provide people to be grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and friends for you and for your children. I have experienced it and I've seen it over and over again where earthly families fail or fall short or simply, simply don't exist. God continually provides for the relational needs of his children through the church, this big, crazy family called the church. And if you're here today and you need a family, Mountain wants to be that. We want to be that for you. We're ready for that. That is part of what the local church is and does. And you know, even if you do have a really great family and everything's hunky-dory and everything's good and you're close in every way, you've got to hear this today too. You are equally called to be a part of the family of God. The church is not just some kind of backup plan for the, those of us with the really messed up earthly families. You need to know that the earthly family is one of those very good things that sometimes gets in the way of the best thing. And I've seen it too often. Uh, it, it can become an idol. 
It can become the thing that becomes the center of our attention and, and the, the defining thing uh, that defines our identity more than any other thing. And that is, that's, that's an idol. That's what keeps us sometimes from the closeness with God that we need. And so Jesus spoke very directly about this too. He said, for example, in Luke 8, now Jesus, uh, this is, we read this, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So according to Jesus, those who, his family is quite simply those who are on mission with him. That's what family is to God. And that's good news for you and me because no matter what our circumstances, we can be a part of the family of God where, where we have this great father who has a purpose and plans for us, a place to belong, and he, he wants to provide for us. Jesus invites us into a broader understanding of what the word family even means. For Christians, our little earthly blood families, they don't disappear or become unimportant, but they do find their proper place as they get enfolded and absorbed into this much larger, more diverse, more beautiful family called the church. And I'm, I'm really glad to be a McDade and an Oakley, but you know, just like my nationality, my career, any other earthly loyalties and affiliations, as a determiner of my identity... My family name is a distant, distant second. It pales in comparison to the importance of my membership in God's family. That is the thing that says the most by far about who I am, about what I'm about, and about where I belong. And God wants that to be true of all of us. And so no matter how messed up and dirty or how beautiful and shiny and attractive your family name is, that's true of all of us. God's family is the thing. So that being said, here's, today, here's the second truth. God wants us to do everything in our power to hang in there and hold on to love in our earthly families. At this point in the sermon, if you are watching on the podcast or the, the website, just press pause, go back two weeks, and listen to Luke's sermon that he preached on hold on to love. Then come back and finish this sermon. You know, God's love never fails. It never gives up, never runs out on us. God never comes to the end of his rope. And family means not just bailing when the going gets tough. Yet we live in a culture that so often tells us to do just that. When the going gets tough, you know, just cut your losses, move on, start over. You're in a tough marriage, get another one. Bail. Better yet, don't even ever commit like that in the first place. Our culture sells us on shortcuts, but there are no shortcuts to healing torn families or establishing strong, healthy families. Our culture says, put yourself first. God says, put me first. Put him first. Our culture says, put your kids first. But the truth is that this is the right, this is the right relational priority list, and it's always in this order. Jesus, spouse, kids, everybody else. Jesus, spouse, kids, everybody else. And if you will live like that... That's what's best for your spouse and your kids. Best thing you can do for your spouse is walk daily with the Lord. Best thing you can do for your kids, walk with the Lord and love your spouse well so that they see that every day. The right path is rarely the easy path. One of the things we love to do around here is to share stories of redemption and healing and how God has made beautiful things out of the messes we've made. And, you know, sometimes that can ha inadvertently send a wrong message. Like sometimes in our pastoral work, we will hear people say things like, they'll, they'll see these great examples of strong, healthy marriages in our church that are second or third marriages. We have a lot of those. And they'll say, you know, they're in this struggle in marriage, and they're like, I just need to get, get out of this one so I can move on to that one. And we're, as pastors, we're like, no, 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 that is not how it works. 
That is not how it works. Yet, you know, yes, we have a lot of those beautiful Christ-centered marriages, second and third marriages in our, in our church, because these are people that have learned the hard way, and they are now building their lives and their marriages around Christ. But you know what's fascinating? I talked to a bunch of them leading up to this message, and I just said, look, I'm not going to use your name. I want you to honestly answer a question for me. If you, your, your marriage is great now, but if you could go back and make it work with your ex the first time, Knowing what you know now, would you do it? You know what they all said? Yes. They said, as much as I love my spouse, knowing what I know now, I'd go back and I would hang in there. I would make it, I would do everything in my power to make it work. I would love them better. I would serve them more. And I think my spouse would say the same thing. And I would avoid the chaos and pain that I unleashed into my kids' lives. And you know, with all due respect to my great step-parents, I'm pretty sure my parents would say the same thing. In Romans 6, Paul is calling out the Roman Christians on some faulty thinking. They, some of them started saying, hey, you know, when we sin, we can then get grace and forgiveness from God, so shouldn't we go on sinning all the more to receive more and more grace and forgiveness? Wouldn't that be good? And Paul is like, no. No, that, does, that, that is not the right way. That is not the way of life. The way of life is to be as obedient as we can to Christ as early and as often as we can. That is the way to live. So maybe you're in a strained parent-child relationship. Maybe you're battling with a sibling. Maybe you're an overwhelmed parent. Maybe you're in a struggling marriage. You know your situation. Could it be that one of the things God wants to say to you today is hang in there? Hang in there a little longer. I'm not saying keep at it until you fix it. You, you probably can't fix it. You may never fix it. God is the one that has to do the healing and the mending. I'm also not saying this, that there's never, ever a time to move on. That sometimes situations, you know, sometimes situations are abusive. Sometimes it is time to turn the page on a relationship and let it be a part of the past. And I, I want to say this very, very carefully. Even in marriage, even in marriage, when there's, when there's, Abuse or when, when staying in a marriage from hell is just clearly a greater sin, I think there's time, maybe a time to move on and we, we get on our knees and we have the grace of God to help us through those kind of situations. But listen, here's what I am saying. Far too often, we quit far too soon. No situation is beyond saving when God gets involved. He can and he desires to save it. Here's, here's another thing I'm saying. Like my pastor used to say back home, you can always quit. It's always an option to quit. Just don't quit too soon. Don't quit too soon. And here's another one. I borrow this phrase from my, some of my friends who struggle with addiction. Stick around for the miracle. Stick around for the miracle. I, I recently heard a really cool story from one of our small groups. Here's part of an email from the group leader. So we have a men's group, 8 to 10 guys, depending on the night. All of us have kids that range in age from 4 to 39. All but one of us has been divorced and, on some level or another, deals with blended family issues. Last night we were talking through some things in our study and I asked the one man with no experience with divorce, he has younger children, what he was thinking about the conversation. He said that two years ago he and his wife had some pretty significant problems and although things are better, there are still some struggles. He also said that hearing stories from those of us that have been through divorce and remarriage really motivates him to stay together. He feels that no amount of hardship needed in keeping his marriage together compares to what he sees and hears from us and others. The pain of divorce and separation from his kids is far worse than anything he may need to do in order to keep his marriage together. 
That is called perspective. This younger guy was ready to call it quits. He was ready to buy that very popular lie that says, you know what, the sooner you can just move on and, and, and start over, that's better for the kids. No. What he learned from being in community with some of these older guys is what it would actually look and feel like on the ground to go through a divorce, to be separated and torn. And those guys basically scared him in a good way. They gave him, they preemptively sort of broke his heart and they gave him a vision. And now he's totally committed to hanging in there and doing everything he possibly can to make it work in his marriage and keep his family from being torn. And that, to me, is a beautiful picture of the church at work. And that, by the way, is why we all need a group like that in our lives. God wants to repair the tears in our families, but even God is rendered helpless if we don't hang in there, if we don't do like Ben said last week and hand him the pieces. So God's steadfast love endures forever, and so maybe our love for each other, maybe your love for that person that you're thinking about bailing on, can endure for just one more day. Perhaps my favorite definition of the word family comes from a friend and mentor of mine, Dr. Leroy Lawson. He, he and his wife had some kids. They tragically lost a biological son. They also adopted many kids. They also fostered a lot of kids, many of whom, he says, just never left. They call them their Velcro kids. And so they got this big, crazy, cool family. And he said... Uh, he said to me one time, this is how he defines family. Family is people who have made and kept promises to each other. Maybe the best example in the Bible of a healthy family is found in the book of Ruth. Sometimes, I bet you've heard these words at a wedding before. Listen to this. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, and I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And you know, the funny thing about that is that those words were not said between a man and a woman in some sort of a romantic context. They were said by a widowed daughter-in-law to a widowed mother-in-law. And what that reminds me of, and maybe what God wants to remind us of today, is that being a family is not necessarily about a lot of the things that we always try to make it about. It's not necessarily about being married or being blood relatives or feeling warm and fuzzy about each other or some of the other things we try to put as parameters. You know what it's about? Making and keeping promises to one another. So I want to urge you to be prayerful and careful about the promises you make. And I want to also urge you that once you make them, you keep them. You do everything in your power to keep your promises and to hang in there and to hold on to love. And then thirdly today, hear this. God's ultimate answer to the pain of torn families is the hope of heaven. Around here at Mountain and churches like ours, we try not to be those kind of Christians who are sort of so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. You know, we preach pie in the sky when you die, but we don't we, we just kind of ignore the implications of being a Christian here and now. That's that's not how we how we roll, you know. And and we want to be people who bring the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. However, sometimes we maybe don't quite talk enough about the hope of heaven. Fact is, even as we fully immerse ourselves in the life of the church and the family of God here on earth, there's still problems and issues and sins and shortcomings. And the church, even the church which is holy and special, 
this side of, of heaven is going to be messed up a little bit. Fact is, even if we hang in there to the very end and we do the very best we can to, to let God lead and, and present all of our issues of our earthly families to God every day, fact is, until Christ returns, we're going to have pain and problems and heartache, which is why it is good to remember that God also promises us a day is coming when it will all be made right again. If your torn family experience has you feeling like you don't have a home, like you don't really belong anywhere, then I want you to remember these words from the risen Jesus when he said in John 14, My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. If your torn family experience has broken your heart and you don't think you can ever heal, Remember the words from John's vision of the future in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or divorce. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. If your torn family experience has you thinking that even the best of what family can offer is just not that great, and if you've just sort of lost hope, remember these words from Paul, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, 1 Corinthians 2. He says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. One of the best days of my life, one of my fondest memories, if not the best day, was the day that Aaron and I began our family. It was our wedding day. We had all of our loved ones, young and old, married, single, black, white, near, far, all of them together in one place. And we, we had a beautiful ceremony, and God's spirit was just so present, and we said our vows, and then we had a big party and danced the night away. Here's a photo. And, uh, you know, to answer your question, yes, I had hair. Yes, Aaron looks the same 11 years later. Yes, I once shaved and wore a tie. I just think it's fitting to remember that this is the image that Scripture gives us for Christ's return. It is a wedding feast. It's a banquet. It's a party. You know, the end of this world, the end of our current reality is, is represented by the beginning of a new reality where all of our little lower stories and our little earthly families will blend into this upper story and this big family of God, this beautiful family of God. When I struggle with my torn family issues, it really, really helps me to remember that that is where this is all headed. The great wedding banquet of Jesus, the groom, and the church as his radiant bride, that's where we're going. So we hang in there. We say, you know, as for me and my house... We're going to serve the Lord. We, we cling to God and to each other. We continue to ask for healing and we work toward it. We hold on to hope. We don't lose heart because we trust that at the end of the day, God is good and that abundant, eternal life is found in Him. I'm just going to end with some words. This is Psalm 27, verse 13. I'm going to read two different translations. One which sort of points back and the other which sort of points forward. New King James Version says this, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And the NIV says it this way, I remain confident of this. I will see 
the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Let's pray. Dear God, we call you Father. And we thank you for being that, for inviting us into the life of your great family, for adopting us when we were orphans. God, would you knit us together as your people and your family in this world? Would you also, God, help us, help us to take steps toward healing and wholeness in our earthly families? Would you heal what's broken and torn? And help us to be a part of that every day. And God, would you just help us as your family in this world and little mini representations of it all scattered everywhere, would you help us, Lord, to be people of hope and people of peace and people of grace and people who can show others that they can be a part of your great family too. Help us to draw others by our love into your family. And we pray these things in the name of our brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.